continue to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God. We've begun the book of Colossians. Again, as of the first of, or the second, should I say, of January, it will be consistently every Sunday. To let you know, and I'm not much for announcements, but I just want to let you know a few things. We are, yes, sorry, I guess I need to unplug that. We have initially, I mean, part of this is seeking to just do what is best. And there's a lot of things that aren't biblically, aren't, aren't biblically established, but they seem to be established culturally. For instance, like if you're going to start a church, you better have a good worship team. That's something. And they're not in scripture, but they're, you know. They're sort of, they st- you know, someone decided they were necessary somewhere. I, I, that I'm fortunate in the sense that that's never been an issue with us. Um, on the other side of it, the, uh, one of those things is, you know, you should have a public building, blah, blah, blah. And I agree because obviously I heard really evangelistic and it's harder to go, why don't you come to my house so I can share Jesus with you? <laughs> you know, and, and people are thinking, how do I jump out of a window? But, but, I, but I will say this. We could get really caught in what I might call the tyranny of the urgent, which is sort of uh, something that seems like it just has to happen now. And I've just been in a lot of prayer about it, just because I really want to be the best pastor I can be for you. And um, part of that really is that the Lord's just been showing um, why, why just try to get a place to get a place uh, unless it's better. And so our heart's desire in a lot of this is really just to have something that's better. And uh, if it isn't better, then we're staying here. And so just the Lord is just, and I think that's what sort of put us in a holding pattern initially was, you know, we don't want to go consistently until we finally feel like we have established. And I understand how scary and freaky it could be. You're running in, you're kind of coming into someone's house and what if they're psychotic and how do I get out of here politely or any of that kind of thing? And, you know, how do I politely say, excuse me, but I I have to grab my stuff and run as fast as I can. (laughs) And, um, but the Lord has just really made clear, first of all, I think the trips to Italy have really helped in the sense that being able to minister to other pastors and and finding a groove with that, um, sitting with them and telling them that a church as it grows uh, numerically, first of all, that's never a gauge of success. Our success is always in obedience. That's the only thing that God calls us to be successful to uh, in that sense. But um, a church will either grow into a family or it'll grow into a business. And uh, inevitably, if it grows to a certain point, I think regardless, it's going to grow into a business. I mean, there, there gets to a point where after a certain point, it's just there's no way I can be family anymore. I mean, I've learned what it's like for the church to grow in California to a place where the only family I would have would be my staff because it was big enough that it was, it, it was larger than the church when it started. And, uh, and so I, I understand that. And I just realized that the Lord is allowing us to invest in family. And we were getting to the point where we're like, well, we could, you know, we could shave off this idea or this idea. And the Lord's like, why are you doing that? Why are you just trying to get a place? So at least so you know, our intent is to go consistently every Sunday, basically for now. But I'd like you just to pray about committing Sundays uh, as of January 2nd. Uh, and and then um, we will, if the Lord shows us a place that's better, that again, with the purpose of better suiting needs, uh, better administering children, or whatever the case is, well then most certainly we'll, we'll jump on that. Uh, if it's something, but here's the good news, is we're already paying rent on this building because we live here. Uh, adding another rent, I mean, obviously we don't even have a box for you guys to give. So uh, it definitely helps in all of that. 
Uh, we'll never pass a hat and know that. That's one of the things we'll always be sort of a box. Well, they won't always be because there isn't one yet. But at least so you know that. And that's never been an issue. We'll always go verse by verse. You can expect that, of course. And uh, once we get through Colossians, which probably if you, those of you who've been around for a while know that we're never in a hurry to, to go through a text because we really want to be able to, to be able to enjoy it and to chew on the meat of it. Um, it's very likely at that point we may, um, we'll see, I won't make any promises, but we may just start in Genesis and start going straight through the Old Testament. I know that some of you are instantly sort of start leaping for joy at that. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, let's, let's get into the word because we expect God to speak. We start in verse 9 because we left off in verse 8 last week. So, uh, or not last week, but the last time we were together like this. Let's read the first eight verses, though, just so that we can get some form of context to this. And uh, my prayer is, is that if... If, if the teaching is, is communicating properly, then when you read some of this again, you could be reminded at least of some key points and those type of things. Remember, Paul has not personally met this church, uh, but he's writing this, uh, in essence, to make sure that they have the right Jesus. And the beautiful thing about Colossians is its Christ-centeredness. I mean, I do love the fact that there are not a lot of issues that he goes into that really sort of define churches today. Uh, for instance, he doesn't say, let's make sure that this is where you stand on tribulation or this is where you stand on election versus free will. And, all says, and granted, those things can be important to some degree, but they should never separate Christians. Because if you could be saved on both sides of that fence, then that shouldn't be a fence at all. It should be, if anything, the fence should be on the outside to separate us from people who don't trust in Jesus Christ and his gift on the cross. That's how this all starts. But he does really want to make sure that the church is Christ-centered. And not just Christ-centered, but a church that is really the right Jesus Christ-centered. And that's we, there are people that will come to your door that will tell you that they belong to some Jesus Christ, but it's not the same. And that's why I do believe that the angel said to the disciples when Jesus ascended, this same Jesus will descend. Not a lot of the other people pertaining or calling themselves Jesus, but the real Jesus will come down and know what you saw. So uh, let's pray. We're going to read the first eight verses, and then we'll read for that purpose verses 9 through 12, because that's our text for today. Lord, I just want to thank you again. I pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, even as we sang out to you, Lord. As we cried out to you, Lord, to fill us and to move in us, Lord. And uh, to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, to give us receptive, pliable hearts, touchable hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray now that you would do a real thing in this place, Lord. Please have your way. And, Lord, let your word first start to become alive. Through. Tell us your word is active in our lives. So... So that's not an issue. We're not asking you to enliven what isn't already alive. It is already alive. And Jesus, as you are the living word, the word manifest, manifest yourself, Lord, in very clear ways to each of us. Speak to our ears and our hearts today, God, every one of us, right where we're at in our areas of need, as well as, Lord, in the areas, Lord, that corporately we will have need as human beings. And we just trust this, Lord. I just submit myself to you. And I commit every moment and pray that you would redeem every moment, Lord. There wouldn't be a single moment in this that uh, would be anything but you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers of Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, 
which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared for us your love in the Spirit. And for this very reason, since the day that we heard of it then, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience with long-suffering and joy, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Lord, again, just let your word come alive. Lord, let your word burst open. And now minister in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, just like I would any morning or evening, don't just believe me. Never assume because I say it, it must be true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the thing for which you test all things said. And I can guarantee you, if I'm going to say that about what I say, I will challenge you to do that with everything. The news, the papers, the room around town, whatever it is, you definitely want that to be the case. Now again, remember, we are in the Lycus Valley. That is an area with our three basic cities. We have the mall area, the shopping center. We have the bank area, and we have the spa area. Spa is Hierapolis, and the area of Laodicea, that's our, so again, that's our shopping center in Colossae, the Colossal Savings and Loan. That's the idea here. And the very, very wealthy area. Um, Paul will say, remember, when this is read, I want you to read this then to the Laodiceans, and the letter that's to the Laodiceans, read it here as well. So there are letters being sent and circulated throughout that valley. But by the way, we don't even have this letter to the Laodiceans. It never makes it into scripture. Uh, however, we do have a letter later on, and it's important to note, it's roughly 60 AD when this is written. Paul is in prison for this period of time. And Jesus will have dictate that letter to the Laodiceans in the 90s AD. So in 30 years, we go from this particular state in the Lycus Valley. Hey, I heard you guys are getting saved. Your faith is spoken out of this place. And notice, notice those three things, faith, hope, and love that he notices. I, see your, I heard of your faith. I see it demonstrated in love. And I see it motivated by hope. And I, and I recognize that any Christian walk lacking any one of those three things will be impotent at best. I mean, we God demands for us to be people who trust him because we can't even please him without faith. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God because if you are going to approach God, you're going to approach him trusting in him. But and then it talks about the fact that he'll be the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But that faith brings about a change in our life. Now, one of the things I did even in, in Sicily, and I would ask you this, is one of the best ways to define things either will be by a parallel or by its opposite. Sometimes I can define something by saying this is like this, and Jesus does that a lot with parables. By the way, that's classic Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is almost always to teach with two ideas, either to put something beside it to say, this looks like this, let me better understand it that way, or here's the opposite so you can better learn that way. Let me give you a classic example, for instance, of the opposite or contrast. The opposite of love is, what would be your first answer to that? That's the problem. Though we know, and I'm sorry to bait you on that, but it is going to be the natural response we would come up with. Biblical definition of love is very different from the world's definition of love. The world's definition of love is an intense emotion of care given towards another person. 
And we even know that that's not necessarily our biblical definition, but that doesn't mean we don't operate from that definition nonetheless. And if that is the way we define love, then the opposite will be hate. But the biblical definition of love, the opposite would be selfishness. And you recognize, I better understand love by understanding its opposite. And that is selfishness. And the reason I say that is, when Paul hears about their faith in Christ, he recognizes it's demonstrated by love. Not a genuine, you know, I'm warm, give me, let me give you a fuzzy warm hug when you walk in the door. But recognize, what he recognizes is that here you guys are being selfless. Because let's be honest, even the world can be a warm fuzzy, but they want something. And they've got something that they're looking for in it. But to be selfless, on the other hand, that takes an act of God. I mean, if I, I, I guarantee you there's none of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will be selfless except an act of God. There's no part of me that was born selfless. There's no part of me that wakes up in the morning and looks for you in the flesh. You show a picture and I'm one of a hundred people in the picture. Who's the first person I look for? Not to see how nice your hair looks. Not to see how good you look in the picture. To see whether or not I look like a goofball in the picture. Because as much as I like it or not, it's natural for me to think me first. And so for the world to look at a, a group of believers like us in this room. They're not going to think anything revolutionary or different about us because we say we have faith in Jesus. There are other people who have faith in evolution. There are other people who have faith in all kinds of nutty things. But it'll be demonstrated in, <coughs> excuse me, it'll be demonstrated in our selflessness, our love, our, the biblical definition for love. But it goes beyond that because he says, though I see you, I heard of your faith and I hear of your love that you have. Notice he says, for one another, not just for the lost, because to be honest, again, like demonstrating for a kid to define love, they're going to better understand it. By the way, my two daughters are going to better understand love <coughs> Excuse me. by the way I treat their mother. Because that's the thing they can watch. They will have no objective way of seeing the way I treat them. They can basically tell me if they feel safe or not, whether or not they feel cared for or not. But the way they'll see love defined will be the way they'll be able to observe it without being a partaker of it which will be, by the way, that I love their mother. In the same way, the world is not going to be able to define our love by the way we treat them. Jesus will define our love by the way we treat the least, the last, and the lost. But he says, the least and the last, the last of my brother, nonetheless. But the world will see the way that we love each other or the way that we're selfish by the way we treat each other because they can observe that from a distance. And that, to be honest, becomes a very overlooked part of the church. Because we're so busy wanting to make sure that the lost knows that we care that, to be honest, we will be busy competing with each other, stepping on each other. And to be honest, who would want to join a club like that? Who would be a part of I mean, I'm looking to adopt another person. Be like, I don't want to be part of that family. And he says, so I see, I hear of your faith. I see it born forth in selfless love. And then the third thing then on that is by the hope that you have that is in you. And it is important to recognize as the Bible talks about our speech always being seasoned with salt, semblant, by the way, for what it's worth, mm -hmm. of eternity, that there has to be an eternal aspect to everything we do. Without an eternal aspect, there'll be no reason for us to be selfish. The reason we are selfish is because we're living in the here, here and now. The whole carpe diem mindset of seize the day is about get yours. You just need to get yours. It's time to get yours. Because if you don't get yours, no one else is going to get me. If you don't get yours, someone else is going to get yours. <laughs> and if somebody else gets yours, you won't even have yours to have anymore. Oh, thank you, Landon. 
What a gloriously selfless act. <laughs> <laughs> and since I said it, you don't even lose your reward. But if we're living in the here and now, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Let me tell you a situation that really, really disturbs me. And again, we will get in the text, but it is really simple and it should walk through pretty, pretty easily. There is, and I, I don't, I'm just going to speak in broad generalizations, but where we came from, there was a pastor who was very well established. He's an older man. He's been in his church for, I don't know, maybe he's met Solomon. I mean, he's been around a long time. You know? and, um, and, he's a, and he's a very level-headed man. I mean, he's, his church is not one of those churches that are given over to the new, hot, crazy, you know, frying pan from the heaven kind of thing. And so he's not busy looking for angel feathers or oil to drip from the ceiling or anything like that. I mean, he's just a basic level-headed. And the, and the, because he's been there for so long and because he's been a man free from scandal, and to be honest, because he's a man that's dealt with life-threatening diseases inside of him, uh, from none of which he's earned, <coughs> he, has, he has been a man of great respect in the community. Well, one night he has this dream, this vision, and this vision is that the entire Central Coast is going to be devastated by an earthquake. Now, this is a man, again, who doesn't normally kind of get these kind of visions. I mean, there are some guys, they have visions like this every week. <coughs> and sometimes you just want to ask what they ate before they went to sleep. <laughs> and again, we don't want to despise prophecies. The Bible talks about that. Clearly, God still speaks that way, and that's totally fine. But the Bible does say to test all prophecies. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with I mean, I don't have a problem you say anything as long as I can test you according to the tried and true word of God. Now, again, if you're going to test me, you better test everything. Now, along this line, so this man goes, and so now he's got this real burden and this passion to go and speak to his fellowship. And so he's got this, now he feels like he has this inside information the Lord has revealed to him. So he goes before his fellowship of, of comfortably a thousand or so, and he begins to speak to them about this concern he has now for the Central Coast. The, the, that doesn't concern me at all. I mean, I'd say, well, that's a pastor's responsibility, sort of the Ezekiel thing of being the watchman on the wall. I mean, if you're going to be silent, you're guilty. My concern was where he went with it. Because the next thing I know, everybody is getting survival packs. They're getting these big jugs of water and these, MR, you know, these, these MREs, which are basically military meals or that kind of thing. And it isn't like that stuff is bad. But, it's, but pardon me, and again, it's not my house, so I can't make great mention of it that way. And I don't know the whole story. That's very evident. I'm not there. But the reason I even heard about it was one of the persons from the church came here to visit. And he was like, what do you think of this? And I had to withhold myself because I don't want to, I'm like, I don't know the whole story. But let me ask you. Now we've got two perspectives. We've got a world's perspective and we have an eternal perspective. And you're going to dwell in one or the other. Mm-hmm. But the difference is whether you're walking in hope or you're not. If the Lord were to tell you today that the Lord was about to devastate, or the, for whether the Lord's going to do or not, that, 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 that London was about to be devastated next week by an earthquake, or you didn't even know when, you just knew it was imminent, what would it inspire you to do? From a world perspective, we would be busy trying to figure out how to storehouse whatever it is to survive personally. But from an eternal perspective, man, what I would be doing is today, if the, if the Lord told me this, and hold me accountable to this, because if the Lord gives me a vision, like even whether it's pepperoni pizza the night before or not, if the Lord gives me this kind of vision, <coughs> hold me accountable, I'd say right after this time, we're going to have an evangelism intensive where everyone's going to get ready because we're going to get out on the streets because I don't want, I mean, if all those people are going to stand before their maker, we want to make sure we give them a choice to say yes to him before that point. That's the eternal side of it all. And that's what really concerns me because, to be honest, it is very archetypical of where we came from in, in the sort of Christian counterculture, very much about the here and now and very much about the world now. 
But what, he, what we see with the Colossian church is not that at all. What Paul says is, I, I hear of your faith, I see it demonstrated in love, and it is inspired by hope. And that hope can't be, I'm just hoping that tomorrow will be nicer because I just live for Jesus today. You know, and we can do that. Ooh, you got a new car. You must be living good. God must be blessing you. Hey, look at the best blessing I could get has nothing to do with this world because the government can't tax it. They can't figure out how to yet and they can't even take it away. And to be honest, the devil can't even touch it according to scripture. I mean, when God gives something, it says that the God, when God gives wealth, he adds no sorrow to it. But if you think the best wealth that God has to give you is monetary, you are selling God short. To be honest, you're selling God. David knew that he was the wealthiest man. It had nothing to do with the fact that he would give a billion dollars in silver and gold for the temple project. David said, you are my lot and my portion. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. David knew that his inheritance was the Lord. And David realized he cashed in on the greatest lotter of eternity because he got the Lord as his prize. And man, if we really think, and then people say, do you believe in prosperity? Yeah, I believe in God's prosperity, but I don't believe that prosperity means God wants to give you money. Because if that's God's prosperity, you might as well go. I mean, basically, he's just your best bet. You could put it on number seven on the races, or you could put it on God. <laughs> and what a waste that would be. I'm like, yeah, the Lord does want to prosper us. But man, not that way. Because nothing is more important to him than your relationship with him. And if that's the case, and God gave you a lot of money, and then you'd be like, well, I'll see you in my next trial. And that may not be for years. God does not do himself a favor by that. He does the opposite. And so, again, here we are in introduction. Look at where we're going. So, God shows, I mean, he, I hear of your faith. I see it in love, in selfless love. Remember how it's defined. I see it inspired by hope. And I learned it, you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras came and told me about it. And what I love about it is what he calls him. He calls him minister, but there are different words for minister. And we'll get into some of the Greek today. And again, you don't have to believe me. I can give you programs where you can check up on me just so you know I'm not inventing this stuff. That a layman can look at. But uh, the, um, the word that he uses isn't like there's words like doulos, which just means a bond servant. For instance, it's a classic word for servant. Uh, it just means a person who's a committed slave. Basically, they've committed themselves for the rest of their life. The word he uses is the word diakonos, like deacon. And it's one of my favorite words because it's so opposite of the way that it's viewed, at least in the south, the south part of the United States. Um, the idea of a deacon sometimes is someone that kind of gets a badge, and with a badge, they kind of become the new sheriff. Don't mess with me. I'm, I, you don't want to talk to me. I'm the deacon. I'm the deacon. You don't want to talk to me because I'm the deacon. I'm Deacon Bob. And Deacon Bob, Deacon Bob will tell you where to sit down, Deacon Bob. The problem is deacon comes from the word diakos, which simply means to run an errand. I mean, the word deacon simply means an errand runner. So when someone comes up and says, don't marry me, I'm a deacon, you'd say, go get me a donut. <laughs> and what do you mean, I'm a deacon? Well, a deacon means an errand runner. Now, praise the Lord, because if, the, if the, the church needs deacons, yes, the church needs deacons. To be honest, every Christian should be a deacon. In that sense, we should all be. But the great thing is what Paul says is that you'd learn the gospel from an errand runner. Just a guy that was running an errand. And you know what the errand was? The errand was to get you saved. God says, hey, will you deliver this gospel to those people? Will you run that errand for me? It isn't like, wow, this is a really scary, heavy thing. Boy, you're never really going to be ill-equipped for it. All God's looking for is somebody that could carry it. And I love that. And it's like, and the gospel does the work, not you. 
I mean, the, the fact is that most people don't share the gospel because, to be honest, we just don't think we can work it. And God says, you don't have to work it. It's seed. Throw the seed. How good do you have to be to throw the seed? You're like, I'm not a good... Th- I don't throw well. You know? You know, and it's like we can do like 16 classes on how to throw. Okay, first of all, you've got to use your right hand, not your left hand. And you want to make sure you go... You know, all even. And, stuff. and it's like, that's funny because when he talks about planting seed in Scripture, that's not it at all. He says, the sower went to sow some seeds. Some fell on the wayside. That tells me he wasn't being careful with it. It's like, the sower went to sow some seeds. Some fell on the sidewalk. And this is a, and you're thinking, this guy's a gifted planner? Oh, I don't want to throw over that because they're clearly sidewalk people. We don't know that. Throw it indiscriminately, you might be surprised where it grows. And what's funny is some of the soil that looks so good gets eaten up. And you're like, how did that happen? I've spent all my time with that. I used to talk about these sprinklers in, where I grew up in Chicago. There were two kinds of sprinklers. There was, and, and, and I don't even know what happens here, so I'm just going to, one is basically this one, uh, this one like bar, and it goes back and forth this way, and it sprays, it almost looks like a rake. It comes this way, and then it comes this way, and that's, and there's that kind, and then there's another one that's like three tilt-a-whirls. You turn that thing on, it just goes all over the place. Now, if you time it right with the first kind, if you don't want to get wet, you can run over there and move the sprinkler to another part of the lawn and never get wet because you could just sort of time yourself to make sure you're not in the spray of it. The second one, you don't have a chance of it. And you're, if you're going to go near it, you're going to get wet. And, and I, I wonder when it comes to throwing seed, which one we are. I mean, it's like, you know what? This is going to be the way I'm just going to throw it. These are my people. This is my burden. This is just my people. Meanwhile, there's a lot of other people moving you along and totally getting untouched. And what I love is he's going, this is an errand runner. This is a guy that's moving my spiritual donut from one place to the other, and it just happens to bring people again saved. And this guy ran an errand, and when he ran an errand, a whole city got touched by it. What he says is the gospel's gone forth in the whole world. And this was a guy that ran an errand, and all of Colossae found out about Jesus through it. What an amazing thing. Now, Paul looks, and again, there's my introduction. We're in trouble. Um, <laughs> Now you know why we're only getting to a few verses. But here's the beautiful thing about it, beloved, is that Paul moved to this. Well, first of all, one thing Paul can't do is go visit the church. He's grounded. He's rested at the moment. And for two years, he's going to be in prison in Rome. Now, if you were in that position, think about it. You might be like, oh, man, what's God doing? I thought God wanted me out there evangelizing. I have no idea the fact that God wants me to write scripture. I mean, Paul, during this point, is writing the Bible. He doesn't know that. I mean, he's writing a letter out of heart for these people that he's never met. And you would think, wow, what a terrible setback. Paul doesn't say that. Matter of fact, when he's awaiting his death in 2 Timothy, his last letter, he says, but the gospel's in chain. Okay, so I'm chained. And you think about it, Paul has a captive audience. Roman soldiers are chained to this guy. They can't get away. And understand... Paul was the guy who preached from the morning till evening. A guy falls out of a window and dies. Paul lays on top of him. He goes back up with Eutychus, and he finishes his message till morning. You think, you've got a trouble with me. This was a guy, I mean, do you realize, this was a guy chained to him for a four-hour shift. Do you think Paul took a breath with this guy? And he's like, well, okay, well, hold on a second. What about you on this side? You know, you imagine Paul's like this, or those guys are getting saved. I mean, you think about it, people talk about, you know, things like there are certain people in the Muslim world, but it's like they say, you may have to share the gospel with someone 45 times before they accept the Lord. And I think, which one of us says, all right, well, let's do it. 
Paul's like, okay, did I share the gospel with you? Forty times. I've got five more with you. Okay, what about you? I mean, I just love the, I just love the fact that it's like Paul was the one guy that could look and go, ooh, wow, two more guys chained to my feet. That's four people now. The church is growing. What a gift that is. And Paul looks at all of this and he goes, you know what? I look at you people and I, I just, I can't visit you. I've got my own issues right now. I've got my captive audience. And you think, well, Paul's in jail. <laughs> not at this moment. He's not. He's at a house. People are able to visit him. He's, and God knows. He's setting him up so he can write these scriptures so that they can go and hand him out. Paphras is one of these people. Tychicus is another we see. And he's just going to deliver this letter. Do you think that Tychicus even knew that what he was carrying in his hand was going to be in the Bible? And what a wild thought. Do you think that when the Colossians receive this letter, they think, ooh, this is going to be in the Bible? I mean, this is going to be somewhere after a bunch of books that the Torah is in right now. What a wild thought that is for the Jews. This is going to be next to some this is going to be next to the stories of Jesus. What an amazing thought. But now listen, we know Paul as a prophet because in Acts chapter 13 it says that there were certain prophets and teachers. So we know Paul was one of those people because he was listed as matter of fact he was the last one listed. We know that Paul is a preacher. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Paul says, look at I preach to you this gospel. So we know him as preacher Paul. We know him as prophet Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us that I planted, Apollos watered. So we know Paul's a planter. So we've got prophet Paul. We've got preacher Paul. We've got planter Paul. And I understand what that's like. There are times when me and you, it's like, that's, this is your calling here. You're going to preach here. Here you're going to call the church to repentance and challenge them to that. Here we're going to plant a church. But it's here that we get to see Pastor Paul. And we recognize that Paul prays a prayer as a pastor. And in these small verses from chapter, from chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, what we have is a pastor's prayer. And I've got to be honest, this seems to me, there are times where you read the scripture, you know, and, and God just, it, you ain't doing it. And you're like, oh, Lord, I'm really sorry. I wish I was. Change me, make me. There are other times, where, by the way, in Romans, for instance, it'll say, the Gentiles do these things. You see that the word is written on their hearts. The law is written on their hearts. There are other times where you actually get to see something and you're like, ooh, thank you, Lord. And the Lord will do that. and go, by the way, you are doing this. And you might want to do it more, but you are doing it. And this is one of those places, i got to be honest, I'm so encouraged. And the reason I'm encouraged is, you have no idea how much I pray for you guys. And one of the reasons is, because the Lord puts you on our hearts. And that's what happens as a pastor. I mean, all a pastor is, first of all, let's stop fancying up things as if somehow we become, you know, we're the CEO. There's no one in scripture. No, no pastor is a CEO. All a pastor is is a shepherd. That's all he is. And he's responsible to lead, to guard, and to feed. That's what he does. Anything beyond all that, to be honest, if it isn't motivated by one of those three things, chances are he's just not doing what a pastor. I mean, there are other... There are a lot of things people expect. Well, what about, what are you going to do with this? And I'm like, well, hmm. And it's just like a guy who starts a business, you think he can do everything. You know, he starts a restaurant and you think, well, that guy obviously knows all the recipes, but he also can handle the finances. Not normally the case with those guys, you find. I mean, you find a musician that starts writing, it's like, oh, wow, he's obviously a gifted songwriter. He probably is really good at marketing his stuff. Oh, normally not. He's the guy that still figures if you give him too much money one time, he'll buy another amp with it, you know. <laughs> And, and the reason I say that is, is that please recognize that a pastor is called to specific duties. But if he does those duties, the church should rise up and do a lot of the other things, to be honest, because that's the case. And I'm very excited about that. 
Well, with that in mind, notice what it says. For this reason, we also then, since the day we heard of it, notice there's a we there because Paul's not the only pastor. Timothy's at the beginning of this letter. And Paul writes to Timothy two specific letters about Timothy as a pastor. But since the day we heard of this, we do not cease to pray for you. Can you imagine that? I just, I can't stop praying for you. Now the word prayer, and it's important for you to know, prosukamai is the word, the most basic word, most common used word used for prayer. Pras yukamai is the word in the Greek. Pras means towards, you means good, and kumai means intent. And it's easy when we first get saved to think of prayer as we're trying to cast God towards our good intentions. Oh, Lord, I, and, and whether we think that way or not, it's what we do. Lord, I, I, I got that girl. I got to marry that girl. And I need this job. God, please give me this job. And ooh, I've got six houses and that's the one I want. Oh, Lord, please. Because those are my good intentions. So, Lord, I want to cast you towards them. But as I grow in my walk with the Lord, I learn how to listen more and talk less in my prayers. And I realized somewhere down the line, I started getting old enough to realize that actually a dialogue should involve two people. But isn't that the case in life? I mean, without even the fancying it up in regards to the prayer aspect, that's just, as kids, we know how to talk and we even like the sound of our voice even when no one else does. But as we get older, part of maturity is learning how to listen. And all of a sudden I start realizing real prayer is casting myself at God's good intentions instead of me casting God at mine. A mature prayer is your will be done, not mine. Isn't that what Jesus taught us when they said, teach us not how to pray, but just teach us to pray. And I look at this and I think Paul's going, man, I just can't stop praying for you. I just really want, and notice what he prays. It's all in verse nine. Everything else is the product of it. And I ask, notice there's no demand there. A guy that starts telling you, you need demand from God, is getting a little bit cheeky with their master or their creator, in my opinion. Because he just asks. Now the word for the way, for the way is the word aiteho, and it just means to ask. That you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's what he's praying. This is his prayer in his simplest sense. The word filled, for what it's worth, pleirahu. There's the word plut that we use. It's not, it's not commonly used as much. It was more in Middle English. It means somebody really, really wealthy. The word pleirahu in its simplest sense means to cram. And I really like this. What he's praying, first of all, is to the degree that you would overflow. By the way, it's important to recognize Jesus is never a God of little. He's a God of abundance. Now, the problem is it's our faith that lacks. Now, again, since we've already established this whole issue of prosperity, so you know that I'm not playing some kind of crazy, don't, don't ask God for a smart car, ask him for a Hummer, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, that's not where I would go with this. That's goofy. But isn't it amazing when we're asking God for a hint of peace instead of peace to overwhelm us? Or asking for a little bit of joy, just enough to endure, instead of, God, could you overwhelm me with joy? Because everything that God starts talking about, Jesus says, by the way, I've come that you would have life. Remember that? And he says, I've come that you would have life and life just enough. No, that's not what he says, is it? How come you would have life just enough to squeak by? He says you would have life more abundantly. No, I mean that's that's the that's the that's God's riches, God's economy is abundant life. Because everything that the world's chasing after with finances is actually the money isn't gonna get it. They think that the money will get them the thing we have without it. 
I mean, you can go to a third world country and realize there are people a lot happier than mm-hmm. with all of the things that they, all the things that are lacking that other people are chasing to get their happiness. That's the irony of it. And it's like, and then you feel like, if I just get the car, I'll be happy. But then you spend your whole life like staying up at night guarding it so no one bumps into it when they're parking. And you think, wow, that really bought me happiness. What that bought me was neuroticism, you know. And you realize that I'm, that Paul is in his prayer. He's asking God, Father, imagine Paul on his knees and going, Dad, could you cram him? That's the beginning of this. Because you're not a God who gives little. It tells us he doesn't give his spirit by measure. That's what we read. He gives his spirit in abundance. Mm-hmm. It tells us that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask of a God who gives to us liberally and without reproach. God's not going, oh, you want a little bit? I'll give you a little bit of wisdom. Just enough for you to figure it out. God says, you know what? I'm going to give you more wisdom than you're going to need. And that's the beauty of it. So I'm asking that you would be crammed full to overflowing. Jesus, if you come to me thirsty, I'll give you just enough so you can come back. To me. No, he says, out of you will torrent living water. There's abundance in that. Our life is supposed to be abundant. The rest of the world is eking by. They're barely existing. We're supposed to be the ones thriving. That's what Paul's praying here. I'm asking that you would be overflowing with this, with knowledge. But wait a minute. Knowledge puffs up. Now understand, there's two basic words for to know. Hoidas and gnosko. Hoidas means to perceive. I could say, well, this is white, this is black, that's a string, this is a speaker or a head, it's, you know, we can look outside, it's sunny. Those are things I can teach you by perception. We're just establishing those things. You don't have to experience it, you don't have to touch it. I could say, look at this, this is wet, and you can look and go, yeah, well, I would guess it is. But gnosko is a knowledge by experience. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to get a warm tingly, for instance, to experience something. To be honest, I'll know you better by the experiences I have with you. Sooner or later, I'll, I could know maybe what will make you laugh, what could bring you to the point of tears. I could know what food you might not like or the food you would. I could find out the things that irritate you or the things that make you angry or the things that bring you pleasure. And I can learn those things by my experiences with you. Not by experiencing you, but my experiences with you. Do you see the difference? And the word here is not just gnosko, but it's epigonosko, and epi means upon. And the idea of this is that I would have experiences those experiences would come upon me in a way. In other words, I have to be there for them. But what I am asking to experience, what I want you to be crammed full of, is, let me just say it this way, it's a relationship knowledge. That's the best way to put it. It's just a relationship knowledge. Is that you would be crammed full of this relationship knowledge of God's will. Now, remember, the word will is the word thelema. And the word thelema is based on the word that simply means pleasure. It doesn't mean God's secret hidden plan. It means what really pleases the Lord and therefore is based out of his desires. Now put this, before we even tag on the the last part of this, my prayer for you, and this is my prayer, sincerely, is that you would be crammed full of a relationship knowledge with God of what pleases Him. Because if that is your relationship with God, the entire world is going to change. Because your entire world is going to change. What I want you to do is I want, I want desperately for you to know by experience God's pleasure. To be able to 
saying, I know this pleases him. And by the way, we are the only people on the planet that have a pleasing God, a pleasable God. Everyone else worships their God to keep him away. He's a wrathful, angry God, and maybe if I do enough things, I could placate him to keep him away. We're not like that. I want to, I mean, I worship a dad who delights in me. With singing, he rejoices over me, we read. That's Zephaniah 3.17. It's one of my life verses because of that. I love that picture of God. Yesterday, my daughter, most of you are aware of this, my 13-year-old of the two, was dancing a solo. So this is one of the reasons they're back in America, is for her to dance this solo to a song called What Do I Know of Holy for a secular dance company, basically, who is um, seeking, the, the, the owner of it is Christian. She was going to the church in, in California where it came from. But she did this song, and it was so, they were so overwhelmed by it, they wanted her to do it as a solo. And I got to see the dress rehearsal of it. Susanna videoed it and sent it to me through Skype. I mean, it's amazing what you can do through technology. Pretty soon, I'll basically be able to close my eyes, and it'll just be 3D animation. But uh, <laughs> and maybe it's already happening. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, but I was just, I was just praying. Because like, then Shantae, that's her name, um, contacted me and said, Hey, Dad, can we Skype before I have my first performance? They have two performances. One was last night, one's tonight for them in America. Uh, and and I'm praying, Lord, let me be. And I, 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 was, I know that the Lord's called me to coach my daughters as well. I mean, in the ways of the Lord. And I'm like, Lord, make me the right coach. I know this is a really fundamental moment. Show me what that is. And ah, oh, he brings me to Psalm 149. And in Psalm 149, it talks about dancing before the Lord. And it says, because, that's verse 3, and it says in verse 4, because the Lord delights in his people. Because he takes pleasure in his people. And it was so perfect for where we were because the idea is, it's like, I said, honey, my prayer for you is that you would experience God's pleasure as you dance for him. Mm-hmm. And she starts to explain to me what she, when she dances, she goes, all I see, dad, is a chair and just God sitting on that chair and that's my only audience. And I'm like, oh, honey, you've got this right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but it's like my heart as a dad is my heart of a pastor. I mean, where I'm going to go, I'm going to have that heart. And it's like, for my daughters, for my wife, for you, my, my heart is that you would know God's pleasure. Because if you knew that God took pleasure in you, how would that change the way you act? How would that change your countenance? How would that change the way that you look and prioritize what is important and what isn't? Because it isn't, oh, I don't want to make him angry. I'm always walking. I mean, a person that, you're, that you live with the motivation, I don't want to make angry, it's really someone you walk on eggshells with, isn't it? I mean, do you want to walk with eggshells with your creator? What a waste of time that is. I mean, and then we want to say, oh, God loves you. But me, on the other hand, I'm just trying to keep him from being angry. What kind of love is that? The apostles look at, I pray. I can't stop praying this for you. That you would be crammed full of a relationship knowledge with him of what pleases him. With or in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Wisdom, in its simplest sense, is applying your, your words. So if I were to say, this is a screwdriver, you put a screw in with it. And then you see a screw that's loose. You take the screwdriver and you do, you've just applied wisdom. You took the knowledge and you put it to proper action. All wisdom is, is proper application to your knowledge. So notice he says, I want you to be crammed full of a, a, a relationship knowledge of what pleases God and would bore forth proper application. 
in all wisdom, and that says, and spiritual understanding. And I love these words. The spiritual, that's the word, pneumatica, so that's the simple word. The word sunesis, or sunesis, the word for understanding simply means, sun means together. It means to put things together mentally. Understanding in the simplest sense is to be able to put the proper things together. You have a, you know, it's sort of like you have three or four containers and a bunch of stuff on the table, and you're able to put each one in its proper container. Okay, all of this, okay, I'm looking at all this and I realize all oh, this is pasta. I realize all of this is, you know, poisons. All of this is, and you realize, okay, this is going to go on this one. This is going to, and you really want to have that proper understanding because if you mix pasta and poison, don't invite me to dinner. <laughs> That's the idea. And Paul says, this is my prayer for you. Me and Timothy, we as pastors, our prayer for you is that you would be glutted. That perhaps might be the best word. And coming from a place like Sicily, I understand gluttony. Um, <laughs> And it's like, what? That was the appetizer. I'm full. Um, that you would be glutted. That you would be crammed full of a relationship knowledge of what pleases him. Now let me ask you. And I, and I won't force this and I won't try to demand it. But I, if I were to ask you right now, tell me one time that you can come up off the top of your head where you are confident that the Lord was pleased at that moment with you. You were pleased together. What would come to your mind? Now let me ask you on the other side of it. Tell me a moment where you're confident the Lord was displeased. Isn't it easier to come up with those? Oh yeah, I'm sure that that, because that was a sin. I'm sure that the Lord was displeased with this. I'm sure that the Lord was displeased. Let me ask you, were you throwing your heart before him in praise when we started? Do you, I mean, if, if you were, can you say, well, that was one, I'm sure that that was a moment the Lord was pleased. Because again, nothing is more important to the Lord than your relationship with him. And if that be the case, shouldn't he be pleased with our surrender? Shouldn't that be the primary, you know, the primark of that would be that. So my prayer is that you would be filled with a relationship understanding, a relationship knowledge of what pleases him, that you would apply it right and be able to put all things together in your head with that as your basis. Is that I could be pleasing to God all the time. Jesus says, I only do what pleases the Father. Wouldn't you love to have that testimony and not be delusional? <laughs> no. <laughs> to walk through the rest of this, the result will be that you will have a six-fold walk. If you are operating in that, and by the way, for what it's worth, and again, I'll try to do this relatively quickly, is the acronym PASTOR. That's sort of where the Lord led me on it because it's a pastor's prayer. First of all, if I am operating where my mind is assembling all things under the basis, my foundation is I have a pleasable God. If I'm operating from the understanding and application that I am serving a pleasable God, then I'm going to have this kind of walk. Verse 10, that you have a walk worthy of the Lord. The word worthy for what it's worth is the word axios. It is a, like an axis. It's the same word. It's where we get the word from. It is actually a market word, and what it simply means is it weighs out properly. In other words, it's an, the term would be proper. That's the P of pastor, is a proper walk. You know, the world says, oh, you, the simplest way is what you practice weighs out with what you preach. That's it. Now, the, what the church has done, now think about this, is the most amazing thing. Because people are going, you just need to practice what you preach. And what the church has said is, well, fine, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I just won't preach. And you're missing the point. I mean, that's, what the, that's a coach in the, in the locker room saying, you guys are doing these plays. 
Look at here's the playbook. Read your playbook and do the plays. And what they what they said is, well, forget it. We'll just quit the team. Then at least we won't be hypocrites. Quit the team. <laughs> then who's going to win this one? And the end of it all, look at we should practice what we preach. That doesn't mean we should downsize the preaching. We should upsize the practice. <laughs> but here's the most amazing part: the way that we practice what we preach to have a proper walk is. To have a relationship knowledge of what pleases the Father. That's the most amazing part about this. It isn't, oh, i got to be more disciplined, though we should be more disciplined. And, oh, I really just, I just need to be more holy, though we should be more holy. The product of nestling up to a God who takes pleasure in a relationship with us is those things start to become the product of it. And people look and go, man, you're weird. Now, maybe they already think that, but it would be a good weird. It's the eternal weird. But they look at me, what is this? Where they, where they want to make up something, and look at, someone is always going to make up something sooner or later, or they're going to try to find something to bring you down, especially if you preach Jesus, because they don't want to believe that. They really want to believe that every model is airbrushed, because then they'll be like, well, obviously nobody's that thin, because they know that they're not that thin. And they think that's the standard. And everyone wants to think no one's that holy, and they want to find you fallen, because then they can appease themselves. But look at, Make sure it's a situation where they have to make something up. To me, that's a compliment. That's an achievement. When someone says, we're going to take down this church, and go, no, you're not going to take this. This is Christ's church. It's not my church. We're going to take down this church. And then they start, and then you realize, wow. And you sit there with your staff, and you realize everything they have here is made up. You go, thank you, Lord. What, an, what a great thing. Now, that doesn't mean you're not, we're not human. There's certainly something that people will. But the bottom line is, it tells us that we are to live such a life that when someone wants something evil to say about you, that they will be silenced and be ashamed. But you won't be the one shaming them. They'll be ashamed because they can't find anything. I love that. And so that's our P, to have a proper walk. Now, how do I have a proper walk? That I know, I know that I know that I know that this is a pleasable God because I see him, I know him. Second thing, notice it says fully pleasing him. Wait a minute, did I have a walk that fully pleased him? The term for what it's worth is areskaya, and the word means, in a simple sense, agreeable. That everything would be agreeable with God's Spirit. The A of pastor is an agreeable walk. It's one that blesses God. That everything I do, God goes, yeah, I like that. Now look, at, as a dad, if one of my children came up here and said, I wrote you a song, Dad is great. Dad is great. He's awesome. I love my daddy. Now, do you think for a moment I'm going to look and go, you know, I don't really think you hit that pitch on that third note. What an idiot I would be for that. I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm, I, if I start playing like Simon Cowell in a moment like that, I'm like, ah, sorry, you don't go to the next round. How horrible would that be? And I'm an evil human being like the rest of us. Why do we treat God that way? As if somehow we're like, well, what if I make a bad, you know, what if I, what if it's the bad choice, but I do it in the very best of intentions because I love God. Can you imagine God going, well, you know, I didn't make clear to you which one of these it is, so I'm going to punish you because you didn't figure it out, but you did it because you love me. Oh, I'm so tired of that. How can we think that way? It's like, look, at, if I have an experiential knowledge of what pleases God, which I know in the end of it, we'll get to what really pleases him. And if it, I'll just, be, I'll live in that. And I'll go, I know this pleases you. I can live a walk that is agreeable with you. I'm not in competition with you, God, and I'm not in, in enmity with you. Man, we get to walk together. 
is being greedy. That's what Amos says. Third thing, being fruitful in every good work or every good work. The word fruitful, for what it's worth, and this is kind of a fun word for me. Uh, the word's kapaforeho, and it simply means fertile. And the idea of it is, I mean, the word is a lot easier used 100 years ago than it is today. Because today, if you say, I mean, you can't even say you're stuffed without that meaning you're pregnant. But to say pregnant, it only has one application today. And people, mm, you you married, right? Mm. But Shakespeare used the term often. And he didn't, I mean, he spoke of men being pregnant. And there was no biological wonder happening. The idea of it was is that they were just full of some form of expectation. I expect something from you. You're pregnant with possibility. You're pregnant with thought. You're pregnant with, and the idea of that is that, man, there's something, it isn't happening yet, but you're a volcano about to erupt and it's going to be good. And that's the word that's used today. Might, we might say a successful walk. That would be our eyes. And the sense of this, every good, the word good for what it's worth means profitable. Not just good like people are like, oh, that's good. But actually it's a profitable, something you say. Every, in the word ergos, just means activity. Ergos. Every activity you set yourself to that is beneficial, you're pregnant before you get there with it. It's going to give birth. And I love that. Hey, now listen. Mary was pregnant with a miracle. No one in the world was going to understand that miracle. They'll invent rumors. They will, they'll talk behind her. And you can imagine, she walks by, and, and I know that culture well enough to know, man, I'm telling you, that, that becomes the party when you walk out of the room. So you know what Mary did? She, got, she went to go visit somebody more pregnant with a miracle than herself. She went and saw Elizabeth, who was more pregnant. She had been pregnant longer. And I, and I think, this shouldn't that be fellowship? Because, I mean, there you are. Because think about it, Mary would be ashamed of being pregnant in a world around her. She'd almost want to hide it. Because she'd be like, mm, look at you. What's, mm, yeah, you just engaged. And we know what that means. And then, how do you explain to one of them? Oh no, it's God. <laughs> Good luck on that one. Hey, it worked with Joseph, but God had to intervene and send an angel. <laughs> I mean, what about Mary's parents? Do we ever read that God ever sent an angel to Mary's parents? To Joseph's parents? Try to explain. I mean, imagine Joseph having to talk to his parents. Well, working, she's going to go, she's come back, I think we're going to put you away for a little while. And that's what the world would say. So look at, in the world, either shut that thing out so you don't create this trouble or get out of here. But fellowship should be the one place. It's like, you know, I mean, she walks in and, and Elizabeth's like, whoa! Man, what happened? Oh, the, what should the, the mother of my Lord be walking into my house? I mean, think of the difference. I mean, there she is kind of hiding all this, getting all kind of feeling kind of sad about it, even kind of, you know, even being ashamed. Or she could have been. We can't say she was. We'll ask him when we get there. But imagine, I mean, the moment she walks into a place where real fellowship is, obviously she's like, yeah, let's stick out now. Because now is a good thing. I mean, that was a great thing. I mean, also, so why should the mother of my Lord be? And I think, man, that's what fellowship should be. All of a sudden, we realize, yes, I've got Jesus. I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit in all the best and not weird ways. We're not going to build a crazy diagram. And the whole idea is we're pregnant with promise. We are pregnant with the promises of God. And he says, look, at when you know the delight of God by relationship, then that's the way you walk. 
He walked that way. He's also like, I don't need your approval. I'm walking with the Lord and I please Him. I don't need to please you. I please the Lord. And the one who knows me the best loves me the most. You're never going to know me that well. Praise the Lord for that. So I have a proper walk. I have an agreeable walk. I have a successful walk. We're halfway there. And then it says, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing just means growing. And the word, and it might I say the T is a teachable walk. Hey, the moment any one of us thinks we've learned it all is the moment we are heading straight, we're heading headfirst into a trial just for God to show us we ain't everything. Oh, don't worry, Jesus, I'll protect you. Don't tell me you're going to die on the cross. You got me, I'm rocky. Jesus goes, you know, saying Nash for you. And to be honest, I said, I'll pray for you. I didn't say no way. You could see Jesus going, you know what, Peter, you're no use to me unless you're broken. Until you, I mean, when you're broken, you leak out so I can come in. And it's like, without me being broken, I'll be so full of me, there's no room for the Holy Spirit. Now look, we sing more love, more power, more of you in my life, but God doesn't give us Holy Spirit by measure. And the Holy Spirit's a he, not an it. It isn't about how much of it I possess. To be honest, when I'm broken, it'll be about how much of me he has. And if God says, if I have to get you in pieces, I'll get you in pieces. I'd like you whole. But if I have to get you with one eye and one leg, I'd rather you that way than you running full sight into hell. I'll take you in pieces if that's what it takes. And it's like, God, I want a teachable person. And by the way, is the Lord limited on what he uses to teach us? I learn from my kids all the time. And I'd be like, shut up, kid. You don't know what you're talking about. I can never do that. I'll learn from the people who will irritate me the most often because the reason they irritate me is because they're trying to teach me. God, they may not know that, but the reason is is because the Lord wants to. And man, I'm telling you, friction just makes us smooth. I realize in this, God's like, look, and again, Paul's like, look, my prayer is you would have a walk that's teachable. And by the way, what I've learned is a teachable person's the best teacher. A teachable person will find that opportunity and go, you know, this kind of reminds me of because the Lord's been doing that with them. Two more. And I like this. Look at verse 11. Strengthen with all might. There are different words for strength. The most classic word for strength, to be honest, is the word stadizo. We get the word steroid from it. A person who is stadizo, you can look at them and go, that man's big. You walk into the gym and it's the one guy that pretty much, you know, there's certain guys that kind of show up at the gym and everyone else doesn't want to work out because big man's there, you know? It's like, do you have any more weights? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then you're like, they're kind of moving the peg up all the way up and going, I'm going to work out now. All right. One, two. 105, 106, <laughs> Then you move the peg, there it is, and then you move the peg back down when you walk away, so the next person goes, ooh, look at how heavy he lifted. No. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've, heard, I've heard stories about that. <laughs> a steadily person, someone you can look at from a distance and just go, but you know, I've learned this, I've learned this from studying fighting techniques when I was younger. Sometimes the biggest guys are some of the easiest to take down because they've never fought because everyone's just afraid of them. Now, I'm not in any way encouraging you to fight, but the idea is sometimes the strongest guy ain't so strong in the end of it all. And sometimes, and there's a certain kind of muscle that's bulk muscle that actually, to be honest, isn't as strong as the short reflex muscles that are a lot smaller. And I'd like, I'd just like you to believe that that's what I present. <laughs> the reason I say that is God doesn't use this word. 
God could use the word sterizo, and the idea of that, to be honest, is we would puff up. I mean, in more ways than one. We'd be, don't, don't miss with me, I'm a mighty man of God, you know? I'm strengthened with all might. And such a person doesn't have to demonstrate their strength, you just sort of assume it by looking at them. But there's another kind of strength. And I, oddly enough, the word is often used power more than strength, and the word is dunamis. And dunamis, by the way, is a word that speaks of overcoming resistance. That's a different kind. Studying, playing American football, everything's about resistance training. I mean, you hit those pads hard, and the whole idea is, I mean, you, you've got things resistant, you need to get past that. And I've learned you don't have to be the biggest guy to have the greatest force. Sometimes you just have to have the greatest drive. And what I've learned, it's interesting because God does not say steroids are with all steroids. Well, I mean, especially in our application, it'd be kind of weird. But what he says is, in its simplest sense, dunamis with the most dunamis, with all dunamis. And by the way, not just some, but all dunamis. And the idea is your ability to overcome resistance. You're strengthened with an overcoming power, with all power to overcome. And so the O then is an overcoming. If you know what pleases God, by relationship, you can have an overcoming walk. No sin, no pressure of the world, no sociological pressure will win if you walk with a God that you know you please. Because you do it right with all, remember, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I'll have a walk that says, I know the society wants me silent. The society is covered in apathy and in indifference, but I don't have to be that way. I can overcome that. And the Bible says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We have an overcoming walk. And my prayer for, I don't want any of you enslaved. I don't want any of you governed by the world. Or even, to be honest, by our own cultures. And say, my culture allows me. I'm convinced men will be as evil as you let them be. But truth be told, we don't want to be as evil as the world will allow us. And the world says, well, you know, any kind of sex is free in this kind of world, that's acceptable here. Any kind of violence is acceptable in this one. Any kind of drunkenness and stoneness is okay in this one. And we look and we walk in that world and we can go, well, I can just ease up a little bit. But no, wait a minute. The, the moment I open the door, we're aware of the fact the flesh and sin have no interest in timeshare. It's total domination. That's their agenda. It'll, and, and my flesh will never get saved. And my sin world will never get saved. It'll never consecrate. It has to be killed. That's what the Bible says. You're going to have to kill it because no matter, I mean, it's like, you know, like you could keep petting that dog. Every time you pet it, it bites you. And he's like, well, I just know one day it's just going to get nice. God says, no, it's not. Send it out and take that thing out. Euthanize that thing while you can. And we've got scars up and down our arm. And we're like, just someday my flesh, my flesh nature is just going to be really nice. And God says, just put that thing to sleep. That's what it says in Romans. Mortify the flesh. And I'm just going to let a little bit, I'm just going to let the dog in for 10 minutes and it's chewing your children to pieces. And you're like, ooh, that was bad. And you know what? I, I've seen that. I've seen myself let flesh in for a little bit and then I'm the one chewing my children or my wife or you guys to pieces. And I'm like, what in the world just happened? And God says, uh, which part of that, what percentage do you think you want a cancer in you? But I want an overcoming walk. But notice the overcoming walk of what that overcoming is. It says, strengthen with all might. Remember, the ability to overcome with all of the ability to overcome. And again, I want to remind you, we're talking about an abundance of everything here. Look at, according to his glorious power, by that way, the idea of that is his jurisdiction, for all patience and long suffering with joy. Wait a minute. My overcoming is so that I can endure everything with a long wick 
with joy, with all joy. Now, wait a minute. That's different. All patience, the ability to remain under it, all long-suffering that I have a long wick with joy. God says, that's what I want for you. I'm not busy trying to go, oh, God, remove the burden. I'm saying, God, give me the kind of back that can carry whatever you put on me because you said your burden is light. And so I'm going to trust you. Well, why is God giving me this trial? It may be punitive. It may be purifying. But if God sends you the trial, it's a good thing. We may not say so at the moment. But if I'm going to long suffer, that means suffering is part of it. And if I'm going to long suffer, he says, I want you to long suffer with joy. I want you to have patience with joy. So whether we're standing outside waiting for a ride for three hours, and it's zero degrees outside, and we could be, you know, and we're like, look at, I'm convinced that fun is 90% or 95% mental. And granted, there's some part of it that's going to be more circumstantial, like you just got your arm amputated. It may not be the most fun moment. You're like, come on, what how I can make fun of this? I can't clap at the moment. You know, there may be those moments. But let's be honest, isn't there a lot of stuff we could make fun that we just don't make fun because we just decided I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna emotionally stink up the moment. You know? It's cold outside and I wanna be nasty and you know and and, and then it's like you're 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 making everybody else stink around you. And God says, look at if you're gonna long suffer, he says, I want you to long suffer with you. You're gonna suffer. That's not I mean, there's no avoiding this. There's no off-ramp in it, but death, and I'll take you there when I want you there. Until then, I'm going to put you through this, but I want you to know I'm going to purify you. I'm going to, I mean, there's no reason to punish anyone except to change their behavior, but I want to, except for preventative. Because I'm going to use you, but in order to use you, I want to purify you, and I want to strengthen you, but I want you to endure it with joy. Endure it with joy. Nearly 40 days without my family, I want to endure it with joy. I mean, I could, I could make this. I mean, I could make this the most pitiful time for every one of you because you'd be like, oh, "Don't, don't talk to him. He's missing his kids." But I'm gonna, I'm gonna do whatever I can. I'm like, Lord, I'm, I know I please you, and if I know I please you, and I'm gonna walk with you, I'm gonna get through this. I mean, every bit of this has an on ramp and an off ramp, and you're gonna take me through both. I mean, none of these things are a dead end. None of these things are a garage. They're a tunnel. And tunnels have two ends to it. And, and we'll read, and it came to pass, and it will come to pass. But the worst part is if it comes to pass and I didn't endure it with joy, because God may say, well, looks like we're going to have to go on the roundabout and take that one again. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. How do I avoid this? He says, endure it with joy. How do I endure it with joy? This is a miserable moment. Not when you're with me. Your joy is not found in your circumstance. Your joy is found in me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. You're with me. I'm not going to walk through fear in this. I'm not going to fear on me. I have an overcoming walk now. Fear is not going to overcome me anymore. And I'm not going to let depression overcome me. I'm not going to let, you know, misery overcome me. And the reason I'm not going to let misery overcome me is because I walk with a pleasable God. My prayer for you is my prayer for me too. I don't want you to have something I don't have. Why would I want you to have all the wealth? Man, I want to have some of that too. God's serving such a meal, I don't want to starve to death while you guys get full. Paul says, I take what I've received and I give it to you and I want to do the same. And if I'm going to have an overcoming walk, my, I will know I've overcome when I endure with joy, when I long suffer with joy. Then I know I've overcome. Until then, I just know I'm in the battle. And by the way, I've said it before, I can take my fist and I can hold it up like this and I can block the side of the sun. But it will never make my fist bigger than the sun. It just makes it closer. 
And I can take my problem and I can put it in front of me and go, God, this problem is so big and you seem so small. But it tells us to cast our cares before him. And the moment I cast my care before him, I realize he's a whole lot bigger than my problem. But if I hold on to my problem, it'll be very difficult for me to endure it with joy. Because I'm like, mm, problem, 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 problem. I'm, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be joyful. I hate this. I'm, I hate being joyful. You know? But once I throw up before the Lord, I realize it's so different. Okay, we better get to the last one. Just because, well, I, I don't know why, but we should. <laughs> I'm, I'm having fun. I hope you're choosing to have fun with me on this. Hey, if you're being miserable through all of this, it ain't my fault. I told you. Long suffering with joy and patience. When's this man gonna finish? Patience with joy. Last one. So I've got a proper walk. I've got an agreeable walk. I've got a teachable walk. I've got an overcoming walk. Now I'm gonna ask you. Time for the quiz. What's the P? Proper. Uh, come on. There's more of you than me. What's the P? Proper. Proper, proper walk. What's the A? Walk. What's the S? Successful. What's the T? Teachable. And what's the O? Overcoming. Overcoming walk. Okay, here's the last one. Okay, so what do I do with the R? Notice verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. The sense of life. The R is uh, a really appreciative walk. Um, you have to put the R in there somewhere. So it's a really appreciative walk. It tells us we give thanks. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to squeeze in anything else. So... I know this. Look at I know this is an American. We're spoiled rotten. And the easiest way to identify someone spoiled is just they're not grateful. I mean, and, and by the way, all ungratefulnesses or ingratitude is, is focusing on what you don't have instead of enjoying what you do. And by the way, the world operates from that because if you focus on what you don't have, you may want to go out and get it. And that's how people make their living. I mean, the fashion industry says, oh, that was in style last year. I mean, it, fit you good. it still fits you good. And to be honest, you probably still look really good in it. But hey, pink's the new orange. Orange was the new black. Black was the new red. Every year, it's the new something. Because then you're like, I can't wear orange. Because orange was, that was just so last year. And you realize, everyone looked, everyone looked like a pumpkin together. But now you're the only pumpkin. And it's past Halloween now. You know. I need I need that, and you know the moment the moment the word need comes out, you know you're in trouble. I need a puppy. I need a remote control helicopter. I need a mocha. I need a chai tea latte with sprinkles. You know. I need some jerk seasoning. You know. I need I need fifty pounds. What if the Lord says, what if, what if somebody just said, God, I need 50 pounds, and you just woke up and you were just bigger? <laughs> <laughs> the Lord said, you asked for it. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> can, I, can I have pence next time? You can, you can pay me in coins. I, you know, I pray the prayer to bed. Enlarge my borders. I enlarged your borders. You're gonna need to get a new belt now. Everything's gonna need to be elastic. But look at give, But it doesn't just say giving thanks. Notice, by the way, you're giving thanks to someone. You're giving thanks to God, to the Father. Let me tell you why. Because He qualified you to partake in this inheritance with the rest of the saints of light. 
Let me look at qualified you. The word literally, the word's akano, it's ikanahu. It means to make able. But you could be partakers of this portion. Until I on it. Until four times. Look in. You didn't qualify by your own works. You never will. You qualified because he qualified you. You know how he qualified you? All of his children qualified. And he adopted you. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's qualified you because he adopted you as his own. And in adopting you as his own, you qualify. All of the kids qualify. What did he qualify you to? For taking the portion. To enjoy his inheritance. What's his inheritance? His inheritance is him. He's a pleasable God. Last point to close this up. Now, what pleases him then? If we're going to have an experiential knowledge of what pleases him, what pleases him? I mean, isn't that really what we want to know here? Listen to this. Again, I remind you, Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. There you go. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you know what I know by experience? The Lord delights in me. You know why? Because I'm His. That's it. And you know how I learned that? Because I have children. And nothing pleases me more than the fact that they're mine. I mean, there are other kids who do really, really great things out there. They perform in really great ways. They get great, great, great achievements. But I don't take as much pleasure. You know why? Because they're not mine. My child sits in my lap. They couldn't do anything better. And it is my pleasure to give them everything that they need for life. And it's the Father's pleasure to give you this kingdom. Remember, he prepared it for his saints before the foundation of the world. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the good pleasure of his will is to adopt us as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it says, Let not the rich glory in their wealth, the strong in their, in their strength, nor the wise in their wisdom. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. God delights in exercising love, judgment, and righteousness and mercy to you. Matter of fact, Micah 7.18 says, the Lord delights in mercy. And last one, Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will delight over you with gladness, quiet you with his love, and rejoice over you with singing. What does the Lord take pleasure in? In you. That's what he takes pleasure in. That's what he takes pleasure in. And I want you to know a relationship knowledge. The idea is that you would be an expert. You would have a doctorate. Now listen. Let the rest of the world, in the pseudo-Christian world, whatever, we're not going to put any titles on that, have... Be, have doctorates in divinity, doctorates in theology. Let's be the ones who have the doctorates in God's pleasurology. How's that? 
Because in the end of it all, I could care less how you wax eloquent about other things if you don't know about a God who pleased that you please. But if you're an expert in that, you're going to be magnetic and the world will want to know about them. We already have people that are displeased with us. We can do that just by crossing a street, by not buying something or buying something when somebody else wanted it. You know, you pick out the tart and someone's like, I, I wanted that one. You're like, well, you can have it. No, 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 no. Well, now how do I win? Well, take this stupid tart. You know? You know, in, in the end of it all, there will always be people that will be displeased. But when was the last time you thought, wow, that person's really pleased with me? Without some form of performance being ready to know. Man, the Lord is pleased because you're His. And if we live in that, we will have this walk. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> thank you, Lord, for your great reminders here. I thank you, Lord, for Pastor Paul, who clearly wants a fellowship he's never known, still has a pastor's heart for. He wants to make sure that they have the right Jesus. And Lord God, I know that he also really wants those who know you to prosper as you in your economy define prosperity which is you what could be greater wealth than to have you what be, could be greater for anyone to take ownership in than their walk with you and I pray Lord for everyone here myself included that we would be crammed full of a relationship knowledge to be experts in a relationship knowledge of a blessable, pleasable God with all wisdom and spiritual understanding that we'd have a walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you in all things, that is our desire here. Lord, that we would be fruitful in every good work because it's our desire to do so, Lord. We really want to set our hands to things that touch the world around <coughs> us, Lord. That we would continue to grow in the knowledge of you. That we would be teachable. That we'd be strengthened with all might according to your glorious power. An overcoming one one that endures with long-suffering and all patience with joy. It's our desire, Lord, to show the world what it means to overcome. Not to validate us, or even to validate you, but in, to invite them to you. But also, Lord, that our life would be one really thankful, giving thanks to you, Father, because you qualified us you enabled us through your adoption. You enabled us to be partakers of this inheritance with the rest of the saints of light. And so I pray, Father, this week for each of us that we would know more deeply, more intimately, more perfectly, more personally the God who takes pleasure in his own. And I recognize it all started with a simple prayer, accepting the gift you paid on the cross with your son for our sin. 
accepting that gift for his his payment perfect as he is for my complete and rampant imperfection for my sin and rebellion and stubbornness dying on the cross because it's what I owed the wages of my sin is death and rising again to offer me not just new life but new life abundant so Father, again, to just renew my vows to you. I say yes to your gift, Jesus the Christ. Confessing him as my redeemer, my redemption, my ransom. And in the humble surrender of my life to you, I confess him as my Lord. So have me now, adopt me, and I know you have. May I delight in the God who delights in me. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, saints. The honor that it is to open up the word with you. Why don't we end with one song? And uh, we can sing.